Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha and welcome to the Future Accords. This is your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and this week we have a very special guest. We have Matthew Kamakani Lynch, the Director of Sustainability Initiatives for the University of Hawaii System. He's also the Board of Hawaii Green Growth, the public-private partnership that has set up Hawaii as a local 2030 hub for the United Nations. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Ari. So you have such a, a fascinating story and experience, and the work you're working on is is really exciting. Uh, so let's dive into the past, and we'll talk about then your present and your vision for the future. How does that sound? Yeah, sure. <laughs> awesome. So so first, where are you from, and, and how did you get started in this work around sustainability? Uh, well, I'm a local boy, born and raised, Kaneohe Bay. Um, fourth generation here in the islands, um, so descended from plantation workers from the Philippines. We're from the um, islands of Cebu somewhere. That's about all I know from that part of my ancestral lineage um, as far as going back to the Philippines. Um, so we, my great-great-grandfather uh, moved and settled on the big island and, you know, in search of more opportunity for our family. Um, and he apparently had a very strong personality. <laughs> so uh, was basically I got into a disagreement with the, the Luna or the overseer, the boss, and so relocated our family to Oahu. Um, my grandma was actually born in Pa'oilo on the big island. Um, and for a while we had a, um, not a halfway house, but like a boarding house, you know. Um, and then we actually moved uh, out to Wahiwa so that we could um, have a uh, more holistic lifestyle and actually like grow our own food. So um, I'm probably one generation removed from, although I, I, I'm a very passionate gardener, um, probably the only one in my generation that engages with that. <laughs> so my cousins are all sort of white collar workers and that's almost a sign of respect for you know all the sacrifices that our agrarian ancestors made for us to be able to have more opportunity um so anyway so that's sort of on my mom's side descended essentially from filipino plantation workers on my dad's side i am irish scottish uh, via australia uh, via the convicts that were sent away (laughs) Um, and so we're six or seven generations removed um, from our ancestral homelands there uh, we were literally sent away. I had a like, great, great granddaddy that probably stole a loaf of bread or something, you know. Um, and so my grandpa, um, my dad's dad, he was what is known as a publican, meaning that he was an owner of a pub. <laughs> and so my dad and his brothers kind of grew up in a in a pub, um, and that's how they accessed higher educations and were able to um, achieve sort of white collar. <laughs> sort of status. Um, but my grandpa was a fascinating character. He, he had his own fight club, although we're not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> and he's like a bookie. He um, was in, he had 
gold mining sort of interests like where like literally those guys that would go and prospect for gold like my grandpa was into that and uh he had a commercial fishing boat for a while he's he was he was a crazy character my grandpa um and so my dad and his brothers are they've well we've all definitely inherited <laughs> that um those genes um my dad's actually a boat builder so he uh used to build you know like 15 foot 16 foot contenders these types of small racing boats so we grew up um, really hating um, being taken into the water in my dad's small boats around Conway Bay. Uh, but there's something genetic about that. It's in my genes. I love sailing now. Um, and have recently discovered that my last name, Lynch, is actually um, from a Gaelic word that is a reference to a mariner. Um, so I'm also disconnected from those ancestral homelands of Ireland and Scotland. Uh, and find myself, the more I learn about it, the more I'm intrigued about the ways that some of um, those lineages actually show up, uh, you know, in my life today. So, yeah, so that's long, long story short, that's kind of the, the story of who I We grew up in Kaniway Bay, as I mentioned, and the, the house that I, we lived in used to look out across the bay to a bank of mangroves um, that I never realized until literally 40 years later um, were actually the the walls of um, Paipaioheia fish pond, um, and it was only at the um, Panikipuka event where they actually closed the wall. Um, we're standing on that wall, looking out across the bay, and recognized the house that I grew up in. <laughs> like literally, it took me that long to know. That's how simultaneously disconnected and connected I am to that mm. that place. You know, so. Uh, yeah, I kind of wonder about how, how that shows up in my life, you know, today. <laughs> anyway, it's a complex story of who I am. <laughs> uh, amazing. What, what a fascinating family history. And you're certainly doing them such an honor to all of your ancestors, the great work you're doing now. You didn't really have a, a straight line to this uh, professional genealogy that, that you're serving now as the sustainability chair. What led you to now this career path um, and really exploring uh, these professional these professional environments. Yeah, that's also a sordid tale. Uh, so um, we I was born and raised here in Kaneohe, uh, and at nine we moved to Australia, uh, right in the middle of like um, the seasons are reversed, right? So we left the summer here and moved to Melbourne, Australia, which was like this kind of bitter cold where you don't get the fun snow, you just freeze your bones yeah. off. And as a you know local boy, growing up slippers, shorts, kind of, you know, pigeon English. I was an alien over there and was very mad at my dad for years <laughs> for moving, relocating our family to the, this place. Um, and because of a number of different factors, I was barely 17 years old when I graduated high school. Um, and one thing, the only thing that I knew was that I wanted to come back to Hawaii um, and that I wanted to learn more about the world and to travel the world and learn that way. Um, so... Um, at the age of 19, I moved back, um, having racked up, you know, a couple years of post-secondary um, education just to keep my parents satisfied. <laughs> um, and uh, when I moved back to Hawaii, I kind of was really intent on, you know, getting myself ahead. And so I was working two jobs and then three jobs and falling into that pattern. Um, and then an opportunity opened up um, to uh, work um, almost like an apprenticeship, but um, I got to work for Bank of America, um, and I was barely 20 years old when I started working for Bank of America. Um, and I worked for the mortgage bank there and very quickly connected with the private bank, which is the 
division of the bank that serves the most wealthy clients. And I was very intentional about why I wanted to go and work for a bank. Um, it was was not necessary for the paycheck. It was for the opportunity to get paid while I learned about money. Um, and so seeking out the private bank and working with the most wealthy clients of uh, one of the largest banks in the nation um, was also an intentional move uh, because I was very interested in understanding what made those people different from us? Why did those families have such different results? W what were the things that they were doing differently? Um, and so in my 20s, I was a very different person. I was very focused on trying to amass financial wealth and trying to understand the rules of that game. Uh, so my life was basically a big experiment. <laughs> um, and I, uh, my first and last experience with corporate America, where these Fortune 500 corporate America was with Bank of America, we, there's all 50 of us were um, very unceremoniously dumped um, one day and that left us all at the unemployment line. And um, I went and worked for smaller and smaller firms before finally starting my own uh, debt and equity management firm um, uh, in my mid-20s, basically, here in Honolulu. Simultaneously, I was uh, experimenting on my own life and attempting to mimic some of the patterns of investing and financial management that I had observed in working with the wealthiest clients of the bank um, to test them out and see what results they might create and started to amass a fairly modest real estate portfolio um, that was worth in excess of a million dollars by the time I was, I was 29. Um, and so at 29, I you know, was pretty arrogant dude. Um, <laughs> thought I had it all figured out having circumvented the traditional pathways into professions and into amassing wealth and whatnot. And I started to get away from some of those fundamentals that got me there um, in the exuberance of youth, shall we say. <laughs> um, and so that was also um, one of the best parts of my own personal journey in education is that education that comes from picking yourself up after a fall. And so by 29, I you know was worth more than a million bucks. And by 31, I'd managed to lose it all and was Pretty, pretty much broken penniless. Uh, and that was my rude entry point into sustainability. Wow. And then from there, you, you got involved in permaculture. Is that is that right? Yeah. So I, uh, um, as with many things in my life, I kind of stumbled into it <laughs> as, I, uh, as part of my own um, musings and introspections, I guess. Um, and so just imagine, you know, 31 years old, um, going from feeling like I'm king of the world and having the fancy luxury car and the houses and the dinners and all of that kind of stuff um, to being not able to, you know, feed myself or clothe myself. Um, and so it's a pretty big piece of humble pie um, that was fed to me. Uh, and so I moved back home to, well, to my second home. My parents still live in Australia. Um, and at 31, hey mom, hey dad, you know, can I crash on your couch <laughs> while well, I figure out what's next for me? Um, and at that time, uh, uh, Melbourne was, in fact, that part of Australia was undergoing an extended drought. It was entering into year 10 or something. This drought was so bad that at what's the equivalent of Central Station, at Flinders Street Station uh, in Melbourne, there was a digital readout next to the clocks and that the, the readout was a percentage it's like it would change every day 22.3 22.2 22 22.1 and um, that percentage was the remaining water in the city's aquifer 
because it's a drought that had gone on for 10 years. So the city was under significant water restrictions. Um, odd number of houses couldn't water on certain days, and they, they would sort of take turns to manage this precious resource. So the, the farmers in that area, um, just as a survival mechanism, were having to innovate very intensely. So it's a really intense hotbed, excuse the pun, of agriculture innovation. And um, permaculture is a, a sort of system that was kind of came out of Australia. Um, in the 70s and so i kind of landed in this spot this uh, hot spot of sort of permaculture practitioners working in urban contexts and also working in ur urban con sorry working in both urban and rural contexts um and that was really fascinating to me um i should probably pause and kind of give a definition or explanation of what permaculture is yes, please. it's a word that's sort of made up of the word permanent and the word agriculture um, a guy by the name of Bill Mollison uh, was a fascinating character himself, um, kind of coined the term. Um, he was essentially seeking to learn from systems in nature, from permanent systems, from perennial systems in nature, and try to understand the principles of design that were at play and adapt and articulate those into ways that we as humans could consciously utilize them for the design of agricultural systems uh, that would similarly cycle energy and nutrients within them um, and not require large amounts of inputs um, and externalized costs for their production mechanisms. So basically looking to mimic nature. And what was particularly fascinating to me is this is sort of like a, a white man's attempt to reconnect to his own indigenous ancestral knowledge systems that he had, like so many of us, been disconnected from. Um, and he was explicit in looking at indigenous ancestral knowledge systems and cropping systems. Um, the uh, Hawaiian systems that were utilized in ahupua'a management um, very heavily influenced uh, Bill Mollison's thinking in and around permaculture. And it's almost as if you have this um, white man looking at these in an attempt to translate that into terms that he understands. Um, which I think is, has been helpful for me to understand why permaculture draws a crowd that it does draw. Mm. Um, and was it, the utility for me was that it was my introduction into systems thinking um, through the lens of food systems. Um, and so that experience, uh, I met one of my classmates in my permaculture design course was a Mongolian uh, gentleman. We're still friends to this day. Um, and he was a director of food security for an international NGO that had actually sent him to this training to learn this framework. And we connected pretty quick because he thought that people from Hawaii were mythical creatures and Hawaii was a place that existed only in fairy tales. And so I told him something similar about Mongolians. Um, and uh, we really hit it off um, and uh, went at, sort of as an internship on a seven-week assignment with our teacher. Um, to work with communities who were already being impacted and disrupted, whose livelihoods were be already being disrupted by climate change impacts. Um, so there's a, uh, Mongolia is essentially a high arid desert plain, right? Um, so there's not a lot of rainfall. Uh, so when you have an unseasonal or an abnormal precipitation event, it's problematic. Um, and there's these phenomenons that are called zuds. A white zud is a, excessive precipitation event that basically means you have a big snow dump and the snow is so deep that the herds that are the families 
staff of life, the families, the Mongolians equipped of Kalo is your herd. Um, and they could not dig through down to the forage, down to the perennial grasses that was their fodder. Um, and so the herds literally died off uh, in the you know, multiple millions, like um, tens of millions of head of um, the various livestock that they raised there. And you had this um, intense, intensified migration to the urban centers. And so this, the land mass of, uh, sorry, the land area of Mongolia, you know, it's, it's larger than Texas. And the total population is estimated to be about 3 million because they're nomadic people. So it's kind of hard to count when people are already are always on the mood, move, but they're spread out across this vast sort of landscape, right? Um, and the capital city went from a population about a half million to one and a half million um, in just under a decade. So you can imagine some of the challenges, the disruption that is actively going on in that society. Not to mention the fact that in the 90s they transitioned from a centralized Soviet-controlled economy to an open free market economy literally overnight. Um, and that had significant impacts too on the social thread. So it's a really fascinating um, introduction to um, you know, the real world, it, almost a glimpse into the future um, of how climate change impacts um, can be significantly disruptive to a society. So we were working with herders that had been displaced um, that we're now learning to um, repurpose old, these old Soviet uh, bunker-style buildings that had been built into passive solar greenhouses to extend their 90-day growing season by, if you can extend it, you know, uh, even 30 days either side. That's a lot more food that you can grow. Um, and so some intense experimentation going on there to, to shift their food production systems. Uh, we worked within 20k of the Siberian border and then worked like on the Chinese border in the south in the Gobi Desert. So experienced a wide range of landscapes and peoples. Um, and that led to some ongoing work um, with this NGO. Uh, back in Mongolia, they invited me back and asked if we could help uh, use my finance background to design some type of um, regional economic development based around food security. And so my buddy and I, Beck, we um, piloted um, a four-year program in his hometown in westernmost Mongolia, in the Altai Gobi, Gobi uh, that was looking at strengthening household food security by helping them to develop integrated root cellars with passive solar greenhouses and small-scale intensified polyculture uh, gardening systems um, that were also mindful of what the neighbor was growing so that you're not all of a sudden everyone growing the same radish or whatnot so that we could actually start to foster quote unquote economic activity just even if it's just barter i'm trading my kind of carrot for your kind of carrot or my recipe of kimchi with yours or whatever the case might be um, but that was our approach looking at household to household as a basis for a whole sort of bioregional economic development system and after the first year the numbers were pretty astonishing, and the numbers are in the um, ten, uh, in the thousands um, in terms of home gardens that had been implemented and pounds of seed potatoes that have been successfully saved and whatnot. Um, and the it, the results surprised us; outperformed, exceeded our expectations. Beck was able to leverage that, you know, times seven um, to 
uh, replicate the project in the capital city. And that led to, you know, the next half decade or so of his life's work um, and led to additional assignments uh, in other parts of the world for me, uh, working on similar initiatives um, in, the, in Southeast Asia and in the South Pacific, um, which is part of the wandering journey that has brought me back to Hawaii. Um, and so it was through that lens of systems thinking and this skill set of um, facilitating dynamic group processes, um, of sort of sensing in and listening to communities to try to understand what their needs are so that you can then co-design solutions um, that introduced me to a very early stages of the Hawaii Green Growth Initiative. Um, and so I actually started um, as playing a sort of facilitation role and then helping with the sort of um, agenda design and group design processes for a lot of the sustainability measures that um, working groups activities that has gone into creating what is now the Aloha Plus State Sustainability Dashboard and whatnot. Um, but that's kind of how my path meandered eventually back to Hawaii. <laughs> Amazing. What a journey. Um, and then how long have you been the director of sustainability initiatives with the University of Hawaii? The, the director. director for about a month. Wow. <laughs> uh, I've been, uh, that was just a recent change. Um, my title up till then had been sustainability coordinator, um, which pretty accurately reflects what's necessary. One of the core functions of this position is you, do you need to do an awful lot of coordinating, convening, connecting, um, but my engagement with the University of Hawaii actually goes back to 2012. And similar to how I started with Hawaii Green Growth, I was just asked for some assistance with some facilitation and some group design. I was asked to help facilitate a strategic planning meeting out at West Oahu, where the question was, after a decade, decade plus, decade and a half of grassroots activism and a waxing and waning of various sustainability champions that have come and gone, why has the university not sort of taken this on institutionally? Um, and so someone in the room asked the question, well, what's our policy on this? And there was sort of a, a quiet, and then we kind of go, oh, right, right, yes, let's work on that. Um, because policy is essentially the DNA of an institution. And so the institution is unable to allocate resources to something that it has not formally articulated as a priority for it. And so um, that led to two more years of work of seeking literally hundreds of folks input across all of our campuses, students, faculty, staff, admin, community partners, um, through in-person meetings and online sort of surveys uh, or yeah, online, through online surveys. Um, and so two years later, um, that the initial draft policy that we presented at the first annual sustainability summit back in 2013 um, went through, let's see, at least three dozen additional drafts <laughs> at a minimum. This before starting to get a formalized draft that was starting to be circulated um, and is really um, a policy that was sort of written by the people for the people. Um, and um, if you look at the policy, one of the criticisms that I've heard is that it reads like there's a lot of different voices in there. And yeah, that's because there are a lot of different voices that went into the creation of that. If you look at the policy for those policy wonks out there, it's executive policy EP 4.202. It's quite easily accessible on the University of Hawaii websites. Um, it reads very much as a framework. Um, the main, the most important function that it does is it 
formally articulate sustainability as an institutional priority and therefore allows the institution to allocate resources to achieving the priorities that it's laid out for itself. Um, the rest of the policy articulates a framework. So when we're talking about sustainability, what exactly is it that we're talking about at the University of Hawaii? Um, and how does it look to the houses of knowledge that were here before us, the indigenous ancestral knowledge systems of this place, to be able to learn from those and understand our role as a younger sibling to those houses of knowledge, um, especially in the context of the potential for rapid climate change and the climate change impacts that we're already experiencing today. Um, how do we learn from those and carry those forth and uplift those systems um, and um, integrate with other houses of knowledge, the Western empirical sciences that are in the academy, um, but also other houses of knowledge because it's literally a time in humanity's existence where we kind of need all hands on deck, right? Um, and so the rest of that policy, I'm, going, I'm hearing myself go on a tangent, the rest of that policy functions very much as a framework for these are the thing, these are the areas that we want to pay attention to. And so very broadly speaking, it directs our office, the Office of Sustainability, to work towards integrating sustainability into operations. So in operations, you have all these subcategories, energy, water, food, waste, landscaping, the list goes on, purchasing, um, so on and so forth. Curriculum, or more specifically teaching and learning. Uh, research and engagement, um, campus and community engagement, and cultural connections. And that last one, cultural connections, is the most interesting to me. When I first started, I could not for the life of me understand how do you operationalize quote unquote cultural connections? What does that even mean? And so I recognized a huge knowledge gap myself and I just set out to seek, learn, understand, listen, listen so that I can understand. Um, and what uh, I've been on a massively steep learning curve um, since then, still am. Um, and it, the emerging understanding of the collective, the collective that is sort of working on this, um, is that cultural connections can serve as the ethical foundation almost. Um, functionally as a um, decision-making filter. Um, so for example, if one of our core ethics is to take care of this place, then when we're making any decision, we can ask ourselves, how is this decision taking care of this place? Um, which means that we're often going to find ourselves in ethical quandaries. It's, it's building community is not easy. It is a messy thing. Um, I'm just thinking about my own family. <laughs> Families are messy. Um, but families stick together. Um, and so uh, the, those, those sort of five areas, operations, curriculum, research, engagement, culture connections, form the framework that direct our office's activities to basically go out and not mandate, but really work to kind of complement, support, enhance, connect, elevate, um, the amazing initiatives that are already underway at each of our campuses and across those functional areas of the university. Amazing. So what are what are some of the manifestations of that framework? What are what are the big priorities of initiatives that you're seeing in the UH system? Sure. Um, so interesting. Um, there's a lot of different answers to the the best answer I can give to this is like it depends what perspective you're coming from. 
Um, so if you're interested in clean energy, for example, one of the most visible expressions of that um, is the one and a half megawatt solar PV canopy that's going in, that's disrupted 100 plus parking stalls this semester. Um, but it's going to generate, um, and that, that is not an insignificant project. You know, that would power, um, you know, hundreds of homes. Um, so that's one of one of our projects that's under the Office of Energy Management. Um, there's a whole list of other energy projects that are underway that um, may or may not be visible to the campus. Um, one of those is an energy management system. It's enormously difficult to manage what you're not measuring. And we had analog meters that did not give us good visibility into our data usage, and we've changed that. It's taken a couple years since the Office of Energy Management was um, established. Um, but we've gone from having monthly data that was questionable, manually read on analog check meters, um, to having uh, cl close to 80 or 90 percent of the largest consumers, uh, um, the heaviest, the buildings that have the heaviest energy consumption, um, be metered with utility grade submeters that get one second data intervals, not only consumption, but uh, all kinds of other measures, power quality, so on and so forth. Um, that are also integrated into an energy management system that gives us access and visibility so that we can now start to do um, analytics looking backwards to try to understand events and diagnose challenges and problems so that we can change our settings going forward, but also to start to get into predictive analytics. And that's the, the data, energy data management component of the Office of Energy Management's portfolio is pretty significant. We're about to um, um, put the word out for some student help uh, with that, because we've got some really good programs here um, that teach that. Uh, let's see, in, in curriculum, um, there because we're a system office, uh, we have a system-wide focus. Um, the most visible thing here at Manoa is going to be the SUST uh, course descriptor code. Um, and you can basically find a list of courses that have been identified as sustainability focused um, that are embedded across academic departments that can cross list with this SUST listing. And if you go to the Institute for Sustainability and Resiliences website, you can easily find a, a listing of those SUST courses offered at Manoa. Um, uh, the other nine campuses are working towards establishing a sustainability minor equivalent that would be achievable in the first year of college, which is essentially designed as an introductory certificate um, to ensure that students are given an awareness of these issues, are equipped with the basic sustainability literacy, and to also ensure that students are taught with consistency, coherence, and rigor, and introduced to such critical pieces of information as climate change, it's a thing, it's happening, it's happening now, it's going to impact your future. It's probably the largest thing that is going to impact all of our futures. And what is sad, but what is true, is that it is possible for a student to graduate from the University of Hawaii having not been formally introduced to what the science tells us about how climate change is anticipated to impact our futures. So that's a major gap that a lot of those efforts are working to close. Um, but introducing someone to, hey, there's a problem here, is almost irresponsible if that's where you leave it off. So what else do we do? How do we close that gap and move forward? How do we address the issue and transcend it uh, by ensuring that 
um, the end result is that we're starting to take steps to ensure that students are equipped and empowered to be able to take action in the face of what the science tells us is to come. Um, how do we equip students to take empowered action and to be able navigators in the face of these uncertain futures that lie ahead, um, especially in the midst of these sort of accelerating trends of planetary instability, of increasing social unrest, of accelerating trends in technology, as those three massive trends converge, um, the, the uncertainty and the stakes start to get amped up and raised higher and higher and higher. So what are we doing in our classrooms? What are we doing in our research agendas? Um, what are we doing in our daily actions and lives, for that matter, um, to be able to um, ensure that students are equipped with the appropriately to, to face these futures? Um, those are sort of two, I mean, they're, they're small examples, but they're also fairly large examples. Um, and again, those are only sort of two specific examples in, in two areas of the sustainability portfolio. So I guess the rest of the answer to that question is how much time do you have? <laughs> well, I, I think th those are, are great examples and really brings us into the that future-looking segment. Uh, and it, you you recently conducted a an Earth Day survey, and you, you'll be starting the 2019 version of that. Um, how does that frame, first of all, what was in the Earth Day survey, and how does that frame your vision for the future? Yeah, great question. So one of the key questions that we're seeking to understand is what do students know, think, do, and feel about climate change, sustainability, resilience, and related issues? And so towards that end, about almost two years ago, we initiated um, an IRB approved, it's like a postdoc level um, study, uh, student focus group study um, that is looking out across the campuses. And so we've talked to um, 200 students over seven campuses over the last 18 months um, with this series of open-ended questions where we just ask these questions and then shut up and listen um, to try to understand those questions. Um, Manoa has a student body of 20,000 <laughs> approximately. Um, so, you know, doing a handful of student focus groups here um, would, would be complex and would be tricky. And I don't think we would get sort of really indicative data, right, on what the overarching trends are. So we reached out to the Manoa Institutional Research Office um, with this quandary and asking for their support and their thoughts and ideas. And they're an amazing team. Um, and so we co-designed uh, last year an Earth Day survey, uh, or more, more accurately, a survey that went out on Earth Day <laughs> that basically consisted of four open-ended questions, and that is along those lines, like what do you know? How, where, where, what specific sources of knowledge do you get the, your information on these issues from? Um, be it, uh, and there's some really fascinating insights from that. Um, here's a handy hint. UH courses are not the top information source um, for these. Uh, surprisingly, uh, students consistently describe instances in their own lived experience as that's where they first learned about, say, climate change. The beach that we grew up fishing from as a kid has been altered. In, or my grandma told me that my grandma was crying because she can no longer feed me in the way that she was able to feed my, my parents. Um, and these are, you know, 20 year olds that are saying this, uh, which was quite a sobering thing for us to get our heads around. 
Um, so there were about 1,600 respondents to this and over 8,000 narrative responses. These are just people that are just typing and sharing their hearts with us, basically. Um, the most fascinating piece of this study is how students are feeling. Um, and maybe I'll come back to that later. Um, so obviously to go through and read 8,000 responses can be challenging. <laughs> um, so the analytics team at uh, Miro um, has actually developed a customized tool for us to help parse through these responses um, and also try to understand sort of emergent patterns and trends, right? Um, so those results are actually now available, publicly available online. You can find them easily at the Miro website. For our decision makers and for deans and directors and departments to aid us with accessing this information, to aid us in thinking about how this impacts what we do in our coursework, in our programs, and how we support our faculty um, to teach in the classrooms. Uh, we've actually developed a, um, a web app to um, make it easier for us to parse through this information and think about how that impacts the work that we're doing. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of like, I guess, reflective of our general approach is to try to go in and seek to understand that context and to keep asking those questions and to keep asking, what are we missing here? Who are we not talking to? Who's not included in this conversation? And the more that we keep asking that, the more that we find that we learn and that gives us really valuable information that aids us in designing interventions to close and solve some of these challenges that have emerged. So one of the, the, the Earth Day survey is separate and apart from the student focus group study, but they're related. This, one of the key insights that we gleaned from the student focus group survey was this holy cow moment where, wow, oh my God, I do think it might be possible that a student can graduate from here having not been formally introduced to these things. And we checked that back with some of our students that we were talking to and they're like, yeah, that's totally true. You could totally graduate from here and, and you know, not be introduced to climate change. Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's not a condition that's specific to University of Hawaii. I think that's indicative of a condition across higher education writ large. Um, especially, this is especially what we're hearing from some of our colleagues that are reviewing the papers that we're preparing to publish on this. Um, but that insight gave us information, um, identified a gap that we could then start to solve for. And so when designing that first year sustainability minor equivalent, which by the way is now offered at three campuses at the University of Hawaii, it's offered at Kapi'olani Community College, it's offered now offered or beginning fall will be offered at Windward Community College and will also be offered at Hawaii Community College um, with a number of campuses poised to be able to offer it starting spring 2020. Um, but the design of that first year certificate is to help to close that specific knowledge gap to ensure that as early in the college experience as possible, we can somehow take steps to um, deliver a consistent, coherent uh, educational experience that not only introduces you to the problems, but moves through that and starts to introduce you to some of the, the solutions. How impactful. Uh, I want to ask more about the, those ideas of feelings of, of the future, and I, I want to ask about your feeling of the future. How optimistic are you about our environmental and climate issues that we're facing right now? Yeah, so my personal 
emotional state around this is actually reflective of, of what was revealed in the student focus group studies. We transcribed all of the discussions into a data analysis software, MaxQDA, um, and then you're able to code it. And so there are certain words that keep coming up um, that correspond to different emotions. Um, and so you're able to go through, and I code these different utterances is what we call them, um, and they're going to correspond to specific emotions. And from there, we're going to be able to distill um, core emotions that are being expressed in these different phrases, right? And so the predominant emotions that come through are worry or despair almost more accurately and hope. And anecdotally, in some of the conversations that we've had with students, they will vacillate between those in that same conversation. And they'll say, I, sometimes I'm feeling those things together simultaneously. And I definitely relate to that. You know, Some days I am enormously hopeful. Some days it is a huge, heavy burden to carry. Um, who's the guy that wrote Blessed Unrest? Paul Hawken. Um, the quote, Paul Hawken quote that, resonates with me and he says something along the lines of look if you pay attention to what the science tells you is in store for us then you are right to be terrified if you pay attention to all of the grassroots action that has mobilized towards taking action and solving some of these challenges then you are right to be optimistic <laughs> and so i kind of feel both of those simultaneously and one or the other more or less depending on how the day or the week has gone um, when I'm connected to other folks who are actively engaged in working um, to addressing some of these issues, I can't help but feel optimistic and empowered. Um, if I get yet another piece of news about something the Trump administration has done to dismantle environmental project, uh, protection um, or greenhouse gas reduction, then th you know that's rough. <laughs> um, so. The, the resolution that I've come to to, to try to like describe this, um, uh, describe myself and my overall emotional state um, is a word I picked up. I forget where I picked this up. is apocaloptimist. <laughs> like it's, it's going to go to crap. I, I can see that the trends are like moving us towards like a really dismal um, outcome. And yet I remain hopeful. <laughs> Yet I remain optimistic that we can somehow pull through. And it's actually a survival mechanism for me. The, the way that I deal with those stresses, I kind of double down and lean into my work even more so. And I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful by the leadership that the University of Hawaii has really shown on these issues. I want to also ask uh, on your organizational philosophy. You, you've done a lot in systems thinking and really being able to take this position around sustainability and really really tease out how intersectional it is and how broad the university system is to really act as this as this catalyst between organizations what is this like and and how do you see that uh growing in the future it's a good question so dear colleague of mine she's become a dear friend um she's a woman by the name of leith sharp and leith is a fascinating character she's a fellow aussie <laughs> And she actually um, started up one of the first sustainability in higher education enterprise, like in the 90s. Um, I believe it was University of New South Wales. Uh, Permaculture Garden, I think, was a key feature of that, <laughs> interestingly enough. It was mad Aussies. Um, and in, in and around 2000, 2001, 
might have been 2002, 2003, Leith was tapped to become the first director of sustainability at Harvard University. Um, and she was there for, built that organization into one of the largest sustainability and higher education enterprises. Uh, money is obviously not an issue at that institution. Um, however, she has a, a really um, insightful <laughs> presentation um, that goes along the lines of how many Harvard people does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> and it's sort of like it's talking about how difficult it is to get things done in unwieldy legacy institutions, right? Um, it is not easy to get things done around here. Um, she was actually pretty brutally kind of rejected by that institution, despite having been a catalytic force for positive change within that in very meaningful and tangible and measurable ways. And in her search to try to understand why this institution and why colleagues that she had you know, worked alongside for more than a decade would treat her so inhumanely, um, she started to investigate, like, why does the institution create these types of conditions that support these kinds of behaviors, that encourage these kinds of, that produce these kinds of behaviors? And um, also kind of came to the realization as, you know, the science of climate change and the anticipated impacts started to become apparent, um, that holy cow, if we are going to have a chance of addressing these monumental challenges, we are going to need to figure out how to enact action at institutional scales. Yet, how many people at Harvard does it take to change a light bulb? So we clearly need to rethink the ways that our organizations operate. We, re we need to rapidly construct new mental models that are going to allow those to transform very rapidly um, and to transform away from being these kind of lumbering bureaucracies towards being dynamic and adaptive, agile organizations that can continue to be, to remain fit to their context and really live into their true potential. And to do that in ways that are not at the expense of our ability to be human to each other. How do we rehuman, how do we rehumanize our institutions? Um, so she started to think about this in terms of human operating systems. If you think about the ways that we organize as human beings, you can think about the conventional sort of command control management driven hierarchy, which is the same model that the Roman centurions organized in. Um, we've been organizing in those hierarchical structures for centuries for very good reasons. Um, they are conducive to consistency. They're conducive to achieving results at scale. There's a reason why military operations organize along those lines. Um, but what is also true is that they have their limitations. If you are at the lower echelons of management-driven hierarchies, it can be very brutal conditions. It's enormously difficult for ideas to emerge, arise, and be built upon, let alone implemented from the lower rungs of those management-driven hierarchies. Um, so from the executive leadership's perspective, that's a missed opportunity insofar as the sensory capacity of the organization is limited. If you are not in tune with what is happening at the most grassroots levels of your organization, then it, you are quite literally flying blind. 
Um, so how do we reconceptualize these human organizations? Um, and in the last decade, with the rise of the internet and things like Facebook and LinkedIn and social media, we have all very tangible, visceral experiences of what it means and what it feels like to participate in an adaptive operating system, in a network. Um, and they can be very ex exhilarating places to participate in. They're very good at the dissemination of ideas, the rapid dissemination of ideas, for better or for worse. Um, they are very good at morphing and adapting and evolving to fit a changing context. Um, so the sensory capacity of an adaptive operating system is very high. Um, what they struggle at doing is achieving the kinds of consistency, um, especially consistency at scale, that command control, management-driven hierarchies um, are designed to do. So when you look at the two human operating systems side by side, which, by the way, you and I both participate in at any given moment, whether we're conscious of it or not, um, the strengths and weaknesses of each, the, strength, the, the strengths of each actually mitigate the weaknesses of the other. Um, but if we're unconscious in our participation with them, then we're kind of subject to the whims of it. But if we can articulate the ways that they might be able to work in more harmony together, or more accurately, if they can work in flow together, um, it, that it, that's, those are the first steps towards reconceptualizing our notion of what is possible in terms of our human operating systems. The legacy operating systems that, you know, whether you're nonprofit, for-profit, public sector, private sector, community organization, so often we just fall right back into that. That's the default operating system that we, we know. Um, but it may not, it is not always, or it is often not fit to the task at hand. Um, so this is kind of um, the nomenclature that's emerging in the global discussion amongst communities of practice um, is flow state organizations. Uh, you won't find a lot of academic literature on this yet because it's in a state of emergence. These are practitioners that are solving for conditions on the ground and rapidly evolving conditions who have also recognized the need to develop a shared language and a shared lexicon to be more precise in how we articulate not only our approaches and our mental models, but the actual tools, techniques, and strategies that we employ on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis to be able to transform organizations from this sort of one modal, single modal um, uh, method of management-driven hierarchy to one that can, that has a potential to be more adaptive, more dynamic, able to pick and choose when it makes sense to access command control models of, of organization and when it makes sense to access networks. And to combine those strategically, to integrate those strategically so that our legacy institutions have a hope of evolving so that they can become the dynamic, adaptive, agile institutions that we need them to be. Fascinating. Really looking forward to that. Where can people learn more about the Office of Sustainability, Hawaii Green Growth, all these great projects that you're working on? Yeah, sure. We're easy to find at hawaii.edu forward slash sustainability. Um, and we just revamped our site to um, hopefully connect you more quickly to specific people and projects on the ground. Um, so if you haven't checked it out already, I encourage you to go check it out and drop us a line. Let us know what you think. 
great. Matthew Kamakani Lynch, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Ari. Aloha.